Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Hannah Marcus, a colleague of mine who is an assistant professor at the Department of the History of Science at Harvard. Her research and book manuscript focuses on the censorship of scientific and medical texts in early modern Italy. This is a really fascinating and important topic because what we're talking about here is different from what many people expect when we talk about censorship. Instead of burning books or forbidding them from being printed, what Hannah's engaging with is a phenomenon where scientific texts, which were deemed illicit by the Catholic Church, often because they were written by Protestant authors, were made licit through a process of editing and expurgation. Now, clearly, censorship is a process of the restriction and control of knowledge, but what we see here is a process whereby censorship was a mechanism for making books and information available, at least to certain people. I got to know Hannah last year when she joined the Star Fellow Seminar at Harvard's Center for Jewish Studies, and she was somehow able to come to almost all the sessions, which is quite a feat in general, made all the more so when we consider that she herself isn't a historian who focuses on Jewish history. Now, of course, Hannah's research on censorship intersected with the discussions that we were having about the history of the book in general, but I thought that it was just so fabulous to have someone like Hannah join us who doesn't focus on Jewish history, but who wants to engage with the kinds of questions and issues that Jewish history brings up. This is one of the many reasons why I asked Hannah to join us on the podcast. Of course, I thought that this was, first of all, an important set of issues, but what it showcases also is a series of historical issues and topics that intersect and cross over with Jewish history. Jewish books tended to be often censored, though, as we'll discuss, it was perhaps a different kind of censorship than what Hannah is thinking about. What Hannah's work demonstrates, though, importantly, is a way in which the toolkit of Jewish history is something that scholars of all types and all fields can look to and draw upon, because these are not isolated silos. One of the big issues I want to engage with is the way in which Jewish history is useful for a range of scholarly and intellectual activity, both for those of us who are studying the Jews specifically, and also the many more people who work on and think about other subjects too. The truth is, censorship is a topic that I've thought about for a long time, both in general and also in terms of this question of the relationship of Jewish history with other fields. About a decade ago, I was participating in a seminar on new trends in Jewish studies, and one of the books that we read was Amnon Raz Krakotskin's book, The Censor, The Editor, and The Text. And one of the points which a mentor of mine made, just in general, was that Jewish history and Jewish studies was about a decade behind other fields, that we were essentially importing ideas and theoretical frameworks that were perhaps passé or old news in other scholarly circles. Now, one can debate whether or not this is true, but I was struck by the way in which Hannah and I, in our conversation, talked about this book in particular, which, coming out of the field of Jewish history, served as an important starting point for her as she was developing her own research on an adjacent subject. So what it demonstrates to me, quite interestingly, is this question of how and why Jewish history can matter to scholars far afield from those of us who focus primarily on the Jews themselves. In general, I think this is an important set of issues, and I'm glad to highlight it on the podcast, because it puts forward, again, even though we aren't talking about Jewish history so specifically, some of the many ways in which history matters broadly. When we study and talk about censorship in historical context, like so many topics, we find conceptual tools and comparative frameworks that allow us to pose questions and consider important topics. Hannah's research on censorship as promulgation, as opposed to censorship as restriction, flips on its head our common understanding of what is censorship and assumptions about how it works that gives us a broad framework for thinking through censorship in historical terms and the control of knowledge in more recent times too. I hope you enjoy this episode, what I hope presents the first in many productive conversations across fields as we continue to consider how and why Jewish history and history at large matters. So, hi, Hannah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks so much, Jason. I, I think your research on censorship and on the history of the book and the history of knowledge is really interesting. 
And I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you about it and why a lot of these issues matter, broadly speaking, and also in terms of how we think about Jewish history and also contemporary issues. So I think it might be useful for us to get started if you maybe just want to say a few words about your research and about the topics that you've been working on. Absolutely. So I'm a historian of early modern science and medicine. I'm particularly interested in questions related to the relationship between science and religion, medicine and religion in the early modern period. So I think of that as sort of roughly 1400 to 1700. Um, And my research is primarily focused on issues in the 16th and 17th century. So science and medicine in the long aftermath of the Reformation. I guess uh, it's great to be here. This is a Jewish history podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't study Jewish history, but thinking about some of the work done by scholars of Jewish history has been really important to my thinking about censorship, about book history. This is a scholarship that's been very attentive to the materiality of past artifacts, very aware of repressive regimes and the relationship between peoples and repressive regimes. So this is a uh, literature that I think intersects really uh, helpfully in, in important ways with my own research, even though my work is mostly related to Catholicism. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really interesting questions when we talk about Jewish history and why it matters, and also about any other field of why it matters, is how it intersects with all sorts of other issues. Uh, I think that there's so much that we can talk about and think about about the relationship between Jewish history and the history of uh, of censorship in the European context. Yeah. So it's actually kind of funny. This is a bit of an anecdote for you. But when I started my dissertation research, my husband had a needed to be in Copenhagen at the Niels Bohr Institute for a month. And so I just finished my qualifying exams. I was going to take a break for a couple of weeks in Copenhagen. But of course, taking a break for me means going to a library and finding old books to look at. And so I ended up uh, going to the Royal Library, the Black Diamond in Copenhagen, and searching for censored books. And like, surprise, surprise, they didn't have very many Italian censored books there. Uh, But they did have a huge collection of Jewish censored books. So as I was starting my dissertation on Catholic censorship and the material practices of censorship, I actually started with this incredible collection of Jewish books and thinking about the ways that those were censored. Like, who's doing it? And this is a question that we can ask with much more greater precision with Jewish books because uh, the censors had to sign the books that they corrected. And by corrected, I mean expurgated, blacked out, papered over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd sort of gone into my dissertation work on Catholic censorship thinking it was going to look similar to the censorship of Jewish books. And in some ways that was true, and in other ways it absolutely wasn't. So mm-hmm. Catholic censors don't sign the books necessarily. It's like much more unusual to see the name of a, the person who censored the book in a text, whereas Jewish books, Hebrew books are always censored uh, with a name. So right. it's just kind of funny because it's like from a point of exploration, it became a really important part of my my research. Right. I mean, I think actually it might be useful for us to step back. It might seem obvious to some people what they think that censorship is. But, but even just with what you've just mentioned, there are so many different kinds of censorship. And I think that when we start to think about why censorship matters yeah. for thinking about the history of knowledge mm-hmm. and uh, the history of religion, it's useful to maybe think about what are different kinds of censorship. Absolutely. I like to think about censorship as being the control of information and the people who have access to information. So I think that that gets us at a, at a couple of different things. One, the ideas themselves might be censored for political reasons, religious reasons, but the stuff gets censored also. So the ways that ideas get censored is through the physical manipulation of texts. I think things are also censored uh, in relationship to readership, who has access to materials and who doesn't. So there are sort of... Mm-hmm hard and soft ways to censor uh, to censor books, to censor people, to censor materials. And I think that what's interesting about censorship is thinking in this big gray area rather than it can or can't be read, uh, yes or no. There's a big sort of medium range, and that's some of the work that I'm really interested in. So my work on medical books, for example, so my, my book, Forbidden Knowledge, Medicine, Science, and Censorship in Early Modern Italy, deals with the Catholic censorship of medical texts. And people have always talked about the censorship of science as being like a Galilean struggle between faith and science, uh, destined to clash forever and ever. And that's just so 
completely not the case in 16th century terms. And one of the passages that I opened my book with is actually this cardinal who's writing to bishops all over Italy, talking to them about the new Clementine Index of Prohibited Books that's coming out in 1596. And in it, he's saying we need to control the printing, the readership. But he's signaling that it's about correcting books and making them available and licensing them to readers, not only getting rid of them. So this isn't just about burning books. It's about figuring out how books can be altered in order to make them available. So see what I mean? This is like the gray area of censorship. It's not that a book is burned or a book circulates. It's licit or illicit. But there's this sort of vast realm, overlapping realm of knowledge that is both prohibited and important. And I'm interested in the ways in which people sort of duke it out about what knowledge that's important can be made available, even even if uh, there are prohibitions in place, censorship regimes in place. Right. I mean, I think that when we think about the way that people tend to imagine censorship, mm-hmm. uh, it's often this black and white issue, right? That a book is either available or it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that what's so interesting about the history of censorship is that it shows the ways censorship is sometimes not so easy to spot also, that something might be available to read, but it has been censored. You know, censorship is a process. It's not just about sort of the boot stamping down on the face of of a society. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the ways that I like to think about that is thinking about not sort of the effectiveness of censorship, like whether or not it is effective at stopping a a book from moving around, but instead thinking about what the effects of censorship might be for lots of people. How is it that somebody encounters a text differently as a result of living within a censorship regime? How is it that that they might write differently themselves later, not just their reading, but that they might impose self-censorship on their own writings, that these are part of the, like, broad range of effects of censorship that go sort of far beyond the individual book or a particular text. So in some ways, I think if you take seriously the big gray area of censorship, that it becomes even more insidious and and more omnipresent when we think about sort of the, the power dynamics involved in who can know and what they can know in different times and places. Right, right. I mean, uh, what you talk about, the the way in which people live with the regimes of censorship, uh, you know, it reminds me of that very famous piece by Leo Strauss, mm-hmm. The Art of Reading in the Time of Persecution, and this question of how people adapt to censorship mm-hmm. uh, and to knowing that their work is going to be read by a censor or that they want to communicate their ideas to people through and across the regime of censorship. Yeah, so this is what Ann Patterson calls the hermeneutics of censorship, like how how we might read and interpret differently with an understanding of censorship Right, that's widespread. I mean, I think part of uh, what's interesting about this as well is when we have the kind of black and white perception of something is censored or something is not, we tend to forget that censorship is something that happens at all levels of the production of, of knowledge. Yeah. The, the concept of censorship and the history of censorship shows us a, a much more complicated uh, social reality. Though I do think – I think there's a difference between editing and censorship and I think that's worth like pushing on a little bit and you have to understand a context in order to understand when things uh, – move from being editorial decisions to censorship decisions. And I think that one of the ways that you can understand that is by paying sort of close attention to um, the sort of power dynamics in play. So one of my favorite characters is this physician named Girolamo Rossi. And he lives in Ravenna, which is basically like a backwater that's been nothing for a thousand years when it was the seat of the Roman Empire very briefly. And that was pretty cool. Um, But he's living in essentially a backwater in Ravenna. And he's having his own sort of personal counter-reformation moment as a physician, where he's going about helping correct books for the congregation of the index in Rome. And by correct, when I say correct, this is the these are the words of my actors, right? So my my Catholic censors see what they're doing as correcting. And this might like give us a little bit of an understanding of how we shade from editing into into censorship, right? Uh, they are correcting. This is within within their mentality. This is not about repression. It's about fixing. There are repressions of elements. But in this case, that's not sort of their intention. They're trying to make texts available by fixing them, by tinkering with them. And so he's going about this stuff in in Ravenna, and he's going through books and like crossing lines out, writing up reasons why certain passages have to be removed, why certain passages are are illicit. 
But he takes the censorship ethos and moves it into editing and self-censorship as well. So then when he goes back to revisit his own manuscripts, you can see him crossing out sections that he'd written earlier, removing names that shouldn't be there, rephrasing some of his praise of people that he might maybe shouldn't praise so highly. And I think that this is part of what I mean is censorship as a spectrum, too. I mean, he's certainly, certainly censoring when he's going through books that are on the Catholic index of prohibited books and making changes to them in order to send them to Catholic censors, right? Like, that is censorship. No question. But then is it self-censorship if he's going back and removing Protestant names or heretical names from his own documents? Yeah, I think so. Uh, But what about the sentence after that, where it's not clear why he's revising it? You know, like if we can't get at all of the reasons, it becomes very difficult to identify what is editing and what is censorship. And I mean, one of the things that people at the time were really concerned with, actually, is like if I'm reading along in this text that I'm supposed to be correcting for the Catholic Church, what if the Latin sucks? Am I allowed to fix the Latin and make that better as a censor? Is that part of my sort of religious censorship duty? And they're like, no, you really can't fix the prose. But again, this is part of the question. I think people at the time even understood this sort of like slipperiness between censorship and editing. And it's important for us to make that part of the story. Right. I mean, it calls to mind uh, Amnon Vraska-Kotskin's book yeah, about yeah. the censor, the editor, and the text. Exactly. And, and part of what's interesting about his argument there is that he's saying that that what we think of as this repressive censorship is actually a process of the collaboration of Jewish writers and the Jewish or the Mm non-Jewish censors who are acting kind of more like editors than this repressive censorship that we might imagine. I think the framework that he lays out is actually incredibly helpful for thinking about sort of, again, what the effects or the products of censorship are, because censorship is part of creating culture. Like censorship is part of a society. It's part of an early modern culture. And I think that like we can see the results of censorship as cultural products, maybe not cultural products that we like all the time or that we agree with now in hindsight. But this is absolutely shaping the ways that people are engaging with things. And and I think that Emnon Raskarkots can lays that out, I think, quite clearly, especially in his sort of early framing. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that before when you were mentioning that that your work intersected with some of the issues within Jewish history, I mean, his book is clearly one of them. Yeah. I read it early on and it was incredibly influential. It seemed to me that the questions that he was asking were the questions that we weren't asking about Catholic censorship. And I, I just sort of took it and ran with it. Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's fabulous you know, in as much as I think that oftentimes actually people say the opposite things about Jewish history and about Jewish studies, that we often end up taking questions and theoretical models and frameworks that are being used in other contexts and then applying them to Jewish history. I think one big issue that comes up, and I've been thinking about it as we've been talking over the past few minutes, is that we're talking about censorship in early modern Europe and especially in Italy. But it seems to me, and this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to have this conversation, that censorship and the history of censorship has really broad implications for how we think about history much more broadly, how we think about history beyond the specific context, and also how we think about our own world as well. I guess we could put it in kind of two two ways, right? The first one is, why do you think that censorship is important for understanding the history of early modern Europe? And why do you think that having these complex and nuanced understandings of what constitutes censorship, how it works, who's involved, you know, what are the the effects of it? How does that help us to understand other kinds of historical contexts beyond that? So I came to the study of censorship actually through my interest in religious history and my interest in the history of the book. In retrospect, it seems totally clear that the intersections of the history of the book and the history of science and religion lie at the crossroads of censorship, that that, that becomes the nexus. And so that's that's sort of where I where I ended up with the project. So my my big sort of questions going in were not about censorship itself, but were rather about the relationship between science and religion in the aftermath of the Reformation, during the Counter-Reformation in Italy, and about the materiality of books and how people engage with the material processes of books. And uh, so then I arrived at censorship uh, because this is one of the great, or not great, but one of the very interesting ways in which people engage materially with with texts, right? Because when you look at a censored book, and I think this is worth actually dwelling on and sort of trying to describe a little bit, like, what does a censored book look like? I mean, there there are censored books that were just burned, right? The burning of the Talmud, for example, right? Uh, We 
still have the Talmud, but the Talmud was systematically burned across Europe in the 16th century. But there are also a number of books that are not burned, but instead corrected, expurgated is the word. So they're they're partially censored. So maybe a passage, a few pages are cut out, or maybe parts are blacked out, or maybe uh, the author's name is crossed off. So there's all of these different ways that censorship materially can be enacted upon a text. And, and I think it's really important that we think about what those different types of censorship do. So both in the ways that people might pick up a book and understand it to be something potentially problematic. It might change the way that you read a book if you pick it up. Without knowing anything about it, you pick it up and you see that there's a bunch of black ink scribbled over it. It's like, whoa, what am I reading all of a sudden? This is the sort of Catholic cautionary counter-reformation piety that I think people were supposed to be bringing to their reading. This is one of the ways that censorship becomes deeply embedded in practices of reading through the the expurgation of texts. Oh, well, can I just can I just yeah. jump, can I just jump in? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know what's interesting there uh, is that it highlights to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier as well that this process of censorship was not necessarily about the limiting of knowledge, but actually making it available, right. and that in a certain way flips on its head the way in which we understand these debates in early modern Europe. We we tend to think about you know, for instance, the the story of Galileo, yeah, right, or of. Thank Any you. number of these uh, struggles between faith and and science, right. uh, and and the imagined idea of this is that that the church is involved in sort of restricting the flow of ideas. Yeah. Uh, but what we actually see by looking at this is that that this process of censorship is actually trying to facilitate the exchange of ideas. Certain ideas. Yeah. Okay. So thank you. That was that was my second point. So my first point is about materiality. And then the, the second point was going to be that if you're thinking about censorship, not just as book burning, but censorship as book correcting, that then you can see sort of what is produced. How is it that people sort of discuss knowledge as being particularly important and worth saving. That becomes a product of censorship, right? A product of censorship is that we know that people are explicitly saying that certain types of knowledge are bad, but other types of knowledge are really critical and important. And so instead of it being what can be known and what can't be known, we can see censorship is sort of a limited form of promulgation of certain kinds of ideas. This is what I mean by censorship shaping culture, um, that it is a, a limit to the free circulation of knowledge. But that doesn't mean that knowledge or certain uh, cultural products don't come out of that, right? So I've been trying to pay more attention to what comes out of these conversations about censorship and censorship of scientific books in particular. I think that um, that we've talked about a couple of different kinds of censorship, the destruction of books Mm -hmm. or stopping them from being printed in the first place, and also their editing after the fact, right? That somebody goes through and figures out what to take out of the text. Yes, that's often described as pre-publication censorship, and then this is post-publication censorship, which can be broken into sort of complete destruction and then expurgation. Right. And then you've also talked about, in your research, sort of looking at scientific texts. Mm -hmm. And then there are, of course, religious texts Mm -hmm. as well that are censored. I mean, I think my instinct when I think about the distinction between the censorship of religious texts, the censorship of scientific texts, is that, that religious texts tended to be fully censored more frequently than a scientific text because a medical text or uh, some other kind of scientific text, it would be understood, would have some kind of useful knowledge within it, whereas some other kind of text, like take, for instance, Spinoza's Theological Political Treatise, would just be viewed as dangerous. Yeah, no, I think that this is absolutely right. So if we look sort of beyond religious texts, nobody is going to allow you to read Martin Luther or John Calvin in Counter-Reformation Italy, right? That's that's not going to be okay. But what about works that aren't religious but are written by Protestants? Because those are all banned too. So that's, that's where I, the angle that I'm coming in at. So people are opening up the possibility that these texts might be able to be selectively censored, particularly because they aren't religious. That's the argument. They aren't religious books. They're scientific books. They're medical books. Doctors need them. This becomes the justification for why they can be allowed. 
And then the church sets up a whole realm of uh, sort of bureaucratic practices that allow those books to circulate. One is expurgation, right? So you cross bits out and they make lists of official expurgations. But another is that books are licensed to readers. So this becomes about controlling readers. I mentioned early on that I think about censorship as being both a control of the ideas and a control of the people to whom they can circulate. Reading licenses, as they're called, um, allowed you to petition your first parish priest, then your local bishop, and then up until Vatican II, uh, you would be petitioning the Congregation of the Index of Prohibited Books, which is only dissolved in 19... 19- 66. I just correct. was actually speaking to somebody today uh, <laughs> about how they saw a reference to somebody making a petition, and I think it was 1966, to the Congregation of the Faith to get access to something that was on the index. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the index of prohibited books lasts until Vatican II. And so people would apply for these permissions, and then you would get a license in the mail that allowed you to keep and read a book for three years. And they're like, you're not going to get a permission to read Luther. Like, he's never in the gray area. Like, those are books that are always going to be burned. You're never going to get permission to read Luther. Also, you're pretty much never going to get permission to read Machiavelli. There are some people who are just, like, too hot to touch. But what about the Protestant Lutheran physician Fuchs? What about the Zwinglian physician Gessner? These books are so useful. This is what the physicians are all saying in Italy. These books are so useful. These books are so necessary and important. So that sort of opens up the possibility that they might be able to be censored in different ways. And I mean, similarly, there's maybe some comparison to be made to Hebrew texts here, Jewish texts here as well. Like I've looked at copies of Jewish texts where the only word that's like taken out of them over and over is like goy and goyim. Right, these references to non-Jews that are not uh, sufficiently appropriate as determined by Catholic censors. Right, so there's there's the sense that um, expurgation allows for again this sort of this gray area, and then people can take advantage of that to allow text to circulate. Right. Uh, I mean, so when you're talking about the censorship of of these Jewish books, mm-hmm. uh, is it because their authors are not Catholic in the same way that 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 texts by Protestant authors would be censored because it's coming from a Protestant writer. Is that the reason why they're being censored or is it more about the ideas that they contain? So Jewish books aren't on the index of prohibited books. That's separate. The Catholic index of prohibited books is just all about combating Protestantism. And that's very interesting because they're like, what, what, how, what should we make of Jewish books, what do we make of the um, Arab astrologers that are so important? Like these, these are interesting intersections, but that's not where uh, the Catholic index is focused. The Catholic index is really aimed at Protestants and curtailing Protestant knowledge from circulating. Hebrew books, my understanding is that censors went into the ghetto and had to check all Hebrew books, period. And so then the books were signed by the censors who'd gone into that space that they were uh, allowed, that they'd been looked. Yeah, you usually say something like, visto per me, uh, seen by me, revisto per me, and then the censor's name and a date. It's just not how things worked in the Catholic world. People expurgated their own books. So when you got a license to read a book, if, if say, uh, Jason, you're a good, good Catholic physician who— uh, What an image. <laughs> You're a good Catholic physician of a certain age. You've now got the ability to read Leonhard Fuchs's on the history of plants. You've now got this license coming in the mail, and one of the stipulations is that you get to keep it for three years, but that it has to be corrected according to the index of 1607, once the index of 1607 is published. And so then you would look at the index of 1607, and you would go through and correct your own book. And while we don't have people saying, I am correcting my own book, you can tell from the material practices that it's just 100% obvious that this isn't like a busy inquisitor doing this, because busy inquisitors write thick squiggles over texts that you're not supposed to have. And instead, you see uh, a reader like, like you, Jason, pious Catholic physician, you don't want to black out the pages of your big, expensive botany book. Like, this is a nice book. You paid a lot of money for this book. So instead, you change every letter into a different letter so that you can't read the author's name anymore because you aren't allowed to read the name Lanhart Fuchs. So you've changed all of the letters. An L becomes maybe a square with an X in it, and the E becomes the number eight. This is material evidence that that things are proceeding very differently than than the censors that are sent into Jewish communities to look at Hebrew books, right? Like this is this is not a busy censor. This is somebody who loves their book and wants to and wants to alter it in ways that are less sort of aesthetically awful. Right, right. So you're describing 
censorship by sort of an administrative authority as opposed to self-censorship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's interesting as well because in order to self-censor your own book, you have to actually read it. So in this whole process, and, and again, this kind of turns on its head, our preconceived notions of what censorship, what it really is, the license to read even though it requires you to to deface your own copy, still requires you to actually read all of these forbidden sections. Yeah. It's not like they sent you. Like you could imagine in an alternate historical universe, uh, you would apply for a license to read such and such a book, and they would send you the the censored copy that they have sitting in their library, you know, and saying you must return it after three years or whatever it happened to be. But here it is a process of of self-censorship. Or, or maybe not self I think of self-censorship as the productive bit. So mm-hmm. like writing uh, your own treatise in which you are careful right. not to say right. certain things. But certainly expurgation done by book owners rather than Catholic authorities. Right, right. I mean, I think that what this gets us into uh, you know, is that when we think about reading licenses, right, and, and what it means to request permission to information. Mm-hmm. I'm curious uh, how this intersects with the wider – early modern struggle over knowledge and its production and dissemination. And here you also have, uh, within this context, also Jewish knowledge is part of this debate as well. Uh, Because as you mentioned, there was the burning of the Talmud. There are all of these debates as well. When we talk about the rise of Christian Hebraism too, there's so much going on in terms of the, the, the interchange of knowledge. And I'm curious sort of how all of this fits together with the story of censorship. Yeah. So, I mean, as a as an aside that I just want to get out there on the table, uh, especially if a lot of your audiences are going to be more familiar with the burning of the Talmud than the contemporary burning also of the vernacular Bible. So I think that that's another th- piece to put on the table, um, that in Italy, the, the Italian Bible, the vernacular Bible was systematically burnt. So that the only copies of the text, right, this is a response to uh, Protestantism that you're able to get at the text, the text of the Bible in your own language, right? This is not about access to text. This is about who can know and what they can know. Uh, so the Bible is systematically burnt. This leaves the only way to access texts in Catholic Italy, the, the text of the Bible in Catholic Italy through through the Latin Vulgate and through your through your priests. This becomes a method of differentiating who can know what, right? This establishes different classes of readers, people who can read because they have Latin and people who can't. So I, I think that there's there are these big divides linguistic divides in society as well. And it's important to realize that when I'm talking about people getting licenses to read prohibited books, I'm talking about books that are written in Latin for learned audiences. We're already in like the top echelons of of society to be able to participate in this process of applying. I mean, I think I think it, it is always useful for us to keep in mind that whenever we're talking about reading, especially in a pre-modern context, there's a very limited number of people who can read to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, books are expensive; they're actually pretty rare. And so, you know, I think that 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 when we think about the the elite nature of reading and the expense that's involved, it 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 reframes the way in which we think about all of these debates and also the the way in which writing in your book, defacing it, making changes to it. It's a powerful statement about your own belief in the necessity of this because you're willing to take this tome that you know costs you quite a bit and to rip pages out or or do other things to it that that but I mean I just think that it demonstrates the stakes of the value that people either put in these books or in this process of censorship at the same time that they were willing to do this even though their books were worth quite a bit. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that the economic thing shouldn't be overlooked. Part of the reason that physicians and lawyers in particular rise up to uh, protest the prohibitions of medical and legal texts, they they are literally writing to their inquisitors that they need these books. We can't medicate without Fuchs. This is the line over and over again. How are we going to get these texts? That they This big uproar circa 1559 after the Pauline Index is published is because people don't want to burn their libraries, right? They see these, they see these uh, big prohibitions, these widespread prohibitions, and they've got to big, valuable library with big, heavy, expensive books, and they are just not interested in getting rid of them. Expurgation becomes a reasonable alternative. It's like, okay, I cross his name out and I'm allowed to keep this big shelf full of books. 
okay, maybe that seems reasonable. Not to everyone. I mean, I have people who are writing in for there's there's one uh, scholar in particular who writes in for a reading license, and he says like, if I have to damage the books, I don't want them at all. So for some people, there is this like hard line about what they're willing to do to their books in order to keep them. But for many people, I think we're getting coming back to this gray area. There's this gray area. What are they willing to do? They're willing to uh, alter a few pages and take out a preface black out of somebody's name throughout in order to not have to burn it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one, one of the key issues that, that it raises is the value of knowledge as well. Uh, and this is something that we see in the, the case of the legal and medical texts and also the religious texts, just how valuable these texts were, not just in financial and economic terms, but in, in terms of the value that they held culturally speaking and in terms of the knowledge that they contain. And I think if you're then thinking about sort of who has the ability, the social ability to get access to ideas, this becomes something that we can spin out to think much more broadly. Like, was it the bird flu virus a few years ago that they there was discussion about whether the articles should be published in journals, the research that they've done on it? Do you want to just quickly remind me? I just don't remember all the details. Yeah, no, and, I, and nor do I. But my, my understanding was that, I mean, there have been a few sort of major science articles mostly related to sort of bio threats that people are doing research on. And there's question about, like, should that research be published? Should that be made public? Um, who has the authority to use that information in ways that are safe and reasonable. And I mean, like, maybe if you're sort of wanting to come down hard on censorship, then you you would have to ask yourself seriously, is, is sort of information about making chemical weapons and bioterrorism something that should be freely available on the internet? And and this is the question essentially that people are asking, not in the internet context, but but in the early modern period too. There are certain sort of levels that you have to reach in order for uh, for the Catholic authorities to think that it would be maybe acceptable that you could be trusted with information that was potentially harmful, books that were potentially harmful, because you could be trusted because of your status and your place in society and your personal piety to not use them in ways that would lead you from the faith. And I think that, like, I mean, maybe this is a, this is a Jewish history podcast. Like, we don't have to make the case for people having uh, genuine religious belief and that being something that's sincerely driving people. Maybe we don't have to make that case to this audience. But but I I think you sometimes do. People ask me all the time, oh, this is so cynical. People are just like crossing out names in order to like abide by the letter of the law. And I think that that's like true for some people. Some people certainly don't care. And they put the thinnest of X's through a page and it's totally easy to read all of it. Um, but I also think that there's sort of a ritual process of going through and defacing books and that this becomes an act of personal piety that many people are actually performing with a sort of set of beliefs um, really at the heart of it for them. Right, right. Uh, I want to go back to something you said before. You were talking about the publishing of scientific research today. There's one thing that could be said about the publishing of a piece that talks about, you know, how to construct a bioweapon or a smallpox or something. But you know, Or maybe one, the how to 3D print a gun. Oh, that's a great example, right? Uh, but I think you know, one thing that, that, that really strikes me is we think about research on vaccines mm-hmm. and whether they are harmful or not. And I mean, uh, so many of the papers have been debunked that, that make the case that the vaccines are harmful. You know, clearly they're necessary. But one might ask, is it a public danger to publish papers that even ask the question to begin with because it provides fodder for people to begin to say, you know what, I don't want to vaccinate my kid for measles. And then this becomes a public danger. One of the things that's interesting as we talk about censorship and we think about it in the early modern context is that it highlights the ways in which ideas are powerful and that I I generally am not a fan of censorship, but I think that that was interesting about looking at the history of censorship is that it raises all sorts of very difficult and unsettling questions about the role of censorship in a society, whether or not it's useful in some instances. I think think that, that generally speaking, censorship is something that we should avoid. But when we look at it in historical context, we need to ask, why did they want to do this so badly? Why did people go along with it? And what can we learn from that? I think that that's a very important question. Yeah, and I think it's a question to which there aren't easy answers, but I think it's helpful to understand that these are questions that we've struggled with for uh, 
many, many centuries. I mean, I think one of the examples, again, this this vaccine example, we might best think about this as calling the efficacy of vaccines into question in the first place opens up the question of whether or not they're effective to people who don't understand the science behind it and makes them active participants in that conversation, even if they don't understand the science. So this gets to the idea of an expert. And at a certain point, you have to question, like, so how different is it from saying that the Catholic Church thinks that you shouldn't be able to read the Bible unless you read it in the Latin Vulgate. They're going to come up with different ideas if you're only reading it in the Latin, right? Or in, in the in the vernacular, right? These are sort of the same questions about who should have access to information. And these are questions that we have to grapple with in a democracy. Like in, in a democracy, we think that information should move freely and that people should be informed. But that requires a great deal of thinking, especially in this era of expertise, I think. I think we're in an era of sort of deep expertise in which people have huge, deep learning, and that we both need to respect that and also uh, not isolate them as the only people who are able to then participate in that conversation. This is one of the lessons, maybe, uh, from thinking historically about censorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the challenges, you know, is that you know, we do live in an era of experts, but experts are often ignored. Part of what happens as well when we talk about sort of our, our own era is that experts censor themselves. When we look at the history of censorship, it trains our eye to look for the ways in which censorship exists, uh, whether we're talking about self-censorship or or any other kind of censorship in our own society. Yeah. And and makes us think really seriously about what constitutes information control mm -hmm. uh, and when that feels like censorship and when it doesn't. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm partial to thinking about questions of information control. That's a central question that, that drives my own research in terms of the history of archives. It's a different kind of control. But I mean, if we broaden the way of thinking about censorship, that it's not just about the books and the texts, but about the ideas, it, it allows us to look at a whole bunch of different historical contexts alongside it. For instance, when we think about the Jewish context, you know, and the and the Inquisition. And, and the Inquisition, of course, did not just target crypto Jews. They they targeted Native Americans uh, extensively as well when we think about throughout Central and uh, South America. But I think that, that what's interesting is that when we think about the dynamics of the control of information, there as well, it's it's there's something very important going on that we need to think about in the early modern era. Uh, and censorship is, is part of that story there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Inquisition. It's important always to differentiate also that there are many Inquisitions, right? The Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, the Portuguese Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition, the Venetian Inquisition, the medieval Inquisitions that are based in cities. So just, just as a as a heads up there, these are different uh, legal structures and diff involved in different places, and their rules are slightly different. But I think that one of the things that's really interesting here is that the Inquisition is all about control of people and their ideas. And the congregation of the Index of Prohibited Books is about the control of texts. But these things, you might realize the control of ideas and the control of texts and the control of people are all intertwined at the same time. This becomes is actually one of the things that I'm quite interested in studying is how these uh, different regulatory bodies uh, conflict at times or come into conversation with each other at different times. The archives that I work in, when I'm working in the Vatican, the archives of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, which holds the archives of both the Inquisition and the Index of Prohibited Books. So it's it's helpful to put both of those things into context together, one uh, for controlling heresy, the other for controlling books and books as they spread heresy in particular. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I guess especially when we try to think about the the relationship between the censorship of medical and scientific texts and uh, the context of Jewish history. What, what is the relationship there when we think about the relationship between, for instance, the Inquisition and the Index, you know, or any other sort of elements of, of thinking about the intersection of, of these two realms? Or do you think that it's mostly just in terms of the conceptual frameworks that we can apply from one to the other? It's not just conceptual frameworks, though. These are uh, governing bodies that are, in a certain sense, both responsible for the same thing, but maybe in different media. Mm -hmm. And so there are times at which the Inquisition is intervening. And in fact, when, when it should be the index and vice versa, uh, though that, that gets mostly settled by the 17th century, mid to late 17th century. But over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries, 
when we've spoken about reading licenses, the ability to grant reading licenses bounces back and forth between the Inquisition and the Congregation of the Index of Prohibited Books. So it's uh, there are these aspects of censorship that as the Catholic bureaucracy itself is evolving, these different parts, these different kinds of regulations end up in different hands at different times. And I think that it's like really, I think it's really important to break down that when we talk about the church, and this is probably true for thinking about uh, Judaism in different times and places as well, but when we talk about the church, the church is made up of a bunch of different actors, a bunch of different factions. And and I think that when we think about the Inquisition and the congregation of the index as, as separate bodies, that allows us to see the people who are part of those groups uh, acting sort of in their own interests in the interest of their beliefs, that that comes out much more clearly. Right. I mean, I think the other thing to, to always just keep in mind as well is that we are talking about Catholic censorship in particular, right. uh, and that there were, of course, many, many diverse censorship regimes uh, throughout Europe at this time. Absolutely. Censorship is ubiquitous in early modern Europe. It is everywhere. There's state censorship. And it's important to point out that when I talk about Catholic censorship, that that's also state censorship, right? Because I'm talking about the papal states that control much of Italy uh, in this period. So, yes, it's religious censorship, but it's also political censorship. But all all states have censorship regimes there. Right. Ways that you have to license a book before it can be printed. Much of what we've been talking about is texts that are already printed and already circulating that are being censored. But censorship happens at multiple levels and in many different sort of uh, governing – the level of many different governing authorities. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess uh, something to think about here is, you know, like what are some of the distinguishing features of these different censorship regimes and and how they apply to the different you know areas where they are uh, extent. Yeah, I think that one of the most important things to bear in mind, especially as we think about sort of a long durée or a long history of censorship, is that the biggest difference, in my view, between censorship in the early modern period and censorship today is a level of secrecy. People in early modern Europe knew what they weren't allowed to to know. When the Index of Prohibited Books is published, that means that it's printed, it's nailed to the doors of churches, and read aloud from pulpits. That's what it means to publish. Not just that it's printed, but that it is literally made public to people. So people know what books they aren't supposed to read. And I think that that's very different from when we think about sort of censorship regimes today, where we don't even necessarily know what it is that we're missing. There's a level of secrecy that's just sort of maybe in some ways beyond the early modern imagination um, that's quite different. Right. Uh, I mean, I wasn't sure how much we were going to talk about this, but I mean, it's it seems like a, like a great example of this. I mean, one takes, for instance, the Mueller report. We don't know what it was that that was redacted from the report. We have a sense of some of the things and, and some of the reasons why things would have been redacted, but we don't know what could be there. It could be anything. But the same thing could be said about any other government document that is redacted when you submit a FOIA request, you know, for some kind of documentation, they're required to blot out, you know, expurgate, you might say, some information. And there's no way to really know if they are removing things that that they should or things that they just don't want you to see. You know, I'm not sure I would call that censorship in and of itself. But but I think that you're raising an interesting point here about, to a certain extent, we don't know what we don't know. I'm sure you know this already, but the Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, some of the things that have to come out of those, and this isn't censorship to my view, this is about privacy, is if you're uh, certain kinds of sort of medical information about people has to always be removed. But it's an incredibly onerous process to do this, and it's always an incredibly onerous process to go through and figure out what materials need to come out. But my understanding is that there are some sort of ideas kicking around about ways of sort of using blockchain to automate those kinds of processes and having uh, AI reading some of this material in order to do that level of redaction, which again, I don't think is the same as censorship. We have to always ask when we are trying to figure out if information is removed, if it's censorship or not, we have to understand the context. And that's, that's what gets us the answer to that question. I think that what is interesting about all of this is that it highlights a couple of things about kind of our modern information age that are, again, perhaps different from the early modern period and you know, really interesting in these uh, distinctive ways. The first one being that there is just too much information to censor, that if we tried to take the same methods of censorship that were being utilized in in 16th century Italy, for instance, it just would be impossible. It's just not practical. Then again, of course, you look at China and they have put into place a, a very effective 
censorship regime in terms of the internet there. And and I, so that's one thing is that, that it highlights the different scale of the amount of information. It limits the, the censorship. And it also highlights the ways in which algorithms play a role in censorship or in at least filtering information. Uh, and, and this comes down to some perhaps touchy political issues. You have people sort of on the conservative side of the political spectrum making claims that there are is a kind of censorship that's taking place say, on social media platforms. I actually think that that's like totally overblown. But what's interesting there is that they, they use the idea of censorship to hold up and say, this is what's happening. Now, of course, there's no way to prove that such censorship is happening. But, but what is interesting about that is it highlights the pervasive idea of what is censorship among the public and this idea also of the role of computers and algorithms like AI or whatever that could be put to use in censorship, uh, even if it's not. And because we don't know what's being censored and what we're seeing versus what we're not, people can come to this conclusion, even if it's not really based on any data. Yeah, I think one of the things that my research adds is a constant reminder that you can't have censorship without censors. And so, I mean, even in the modern case, if we talk about China's Great Firewall, my understanding is there's something like hundreds of thousands to a million censors, like people who are involved in reading content and determining what can pass through and what can't. And this this becomes, I think, a really interesting and important issue that while censorship is limiting information, in order to do that work, it has to select groups of people who have access to that information. Mm-hmm. And we can understand a lot about what is valued in a society based on looking at how censorship regime sort of deploys uh, its resources through these people. You know, again, when we think about the, the the importance of censorship and its history, and as a as a concept as well, we also need to be asking these questions about what is the relationship between censorship and democracy, or between the the free flow of information and the political systems that arise around it. I mean, I think when we look at, for instance, China uh, and the the introduction of the internet there say, in the 90s, the early 2000s, there was a, a belief that that introducing the internet would naturally lead to the downfall, essentially, of the communist regime. And it, it's interesting that's like, uh, you know, a pseudo-Marxist perspective. I mean, in as much as you, know, you have this idea of the structure and the superstructure, the, the structure is not the economic model, but the information model. And built on top of that is, is the political and cultural frameworks. And that if you change the foundational framework of the society or, 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 of, or of the, the, the availability of information, then, then everything on top will, by necessity, change. And that's why I say it's pseudo-Marxist, but that's not the only ironic thing about that. You know, what's just so interesting about it is that when we look at the history of censorship, we see that these two things are not always coupled together. That just because there's a free flow of information doesn't mean that there will necessarily be a democracy or a benevolent political system. I think that what's interesting when we look at the history of censorship is that we see the, the complex relationship between all of these factors in the development of a society. I just think that that when we think about why history matters, this is one really interesting case. Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess I'd add one point is that you don't have censorship without censors. I'd also add that there's always material instantiations of what is being censored um, and that that becomes quite interesting, too. So if it's a book, the ways that it's blacked out, uh, I mean, there's some really interesting scholarship by Matthew Kirschenbaum about erasing digital files, how how even digital media has a physical instantiation. We can think about what it means to control information in different media and how how we interact with it differently. Mm-hmm. I think that one thing that, that is interesting as well, when we talk about the history of censorship, uh, and it is about what kind of things are censored. Uh, you know, you're talking about the censorship of scientific texts, you know, or of religious texts and, and how they are different from one another. I mean, what's interesting to me, among many other things, is that that implies a differentiation between them. Well, because I'm thinking about like Funkenstein and like the like scientific imagination. Yeah. Oh, my God, I can't go there. I can't. It's too much Kant. Well, the relationship between sort of like. So, between science and religion? Yeah. So, no, no, no. Well, because I wasn't planning to do anything. When I started research on censorship, I wasn't planning to research science and censorship in particular. I was interested in science, but I went in with a much broader idea. I was going to look at how historical texts were censored, because they were, how literary texts were censored, because they were. But the reason that I ended up looking at scientific texts and medical texts in particular was this re- recurring 
conversation about the utility of those texts, which is unique to medicine in particular, with some resonances also in law. But again, like, so this this becomes about the content. Like, what does censorship do to different kinds of content? What are the cultural products of censorship? And I think one of the things that I saw where censorship is being sort of inflicted, Catholic censorship is inflicted on all of these different disciplinary domains, that what comes out of it in the medical realm is a sort of robust system of justification based on utility, the utility of physicians for society and the utility of medical books to the work of physicians. And so this becomes about the importance of science to society. And I think that this is a much broader story about how we think about science and society. Right, right. And I, I want to think about about the relationship between science and religion, uh, you know, which is to say that, that part of what's happening here, and this is just my kind of instinct in thinking about all these issues, but part of what's happening here as well is this distinction between allowing the circulation of medical and scientific texts that are kind of cleansed of any religious impurities, right, uh, that this is allowed. It is applying a, a sense of the neutrality of scientific knowledge, hmm. right, that, that essentially it's saying that you just forget who wrote the book, right, but the knowledge is still true. And that's actually a very modern approach, which is to say that there's a distinction between the creator, the author, and the and the work. And and this, you know, something that I think when we think about more recent trends and thinking about history and literature and and historiography and so on and so forth, what's quite interesting about all of this is that we are constantly emphasizing that you can't make a distinction between who the author was, their religious, social, intellectual, political context, you know, any different kind of context that they are in and the work that they produce. And so what is interesting here as well is, is this this idea of the neutrality of information that comes through this process. And, and that to me is really fascinating on an intellectual level because it just highlights the way in which some of these ideas have changed over the centuries. Yeah, I think that both the neutrality of scientific information is really interesting, then also the utilitarian justification for science, right? That the end of science of knowledge justifies the means. And we might think about the intense ramifications for that. But in this particular context of early modern Italy and Catholic censorship, so you need a few Protestant books in order to save some Catholic bodies, right? I mean, like, the ends of saving Catholic bodies justifies the means, right? Right. One thing to add on to this as well is the fact that scientific knowledge has profound political and religious ramifications. Think about just the most prominent example, but there are so many of them, is is the theories of evolution, or broadly speaking, uh, relating to cosmology and the Big Bang these issues go back in a certain way almost to the early modern era where the scientific theories that are being introduced, uh, you know, this, of course, is the sort of the famous example of Galileo, Copernicus, and so on and so forth. They radically reformulate the way in which people view the world sometimes in conflict with their pre-existing religious beliefs. And so what's interesting here when we think about this whole early modern conception that the scientific knowledge was okay is that in actuality, writing a writing a book on the history of uh, of plants or on the origin of species is is something that that is not neutral by any means, and, and it has these tremendous ramifications in terms of religious developments. So there is this connection. So, well, in the sense that you could tinker with these texts in order to reconcile them, I think is an interesting element too. It's like perhaps the information is neutral, but so then the it's all about the framing in that case. How how can you reframe right. a text to make it? I mean, I just don't think that any information is neutral. <laughs> I mean, and, and this this it comes back to sort of all my work on archives and on the on the history of information. You know, nothing is really neutral. No. Uh, you know, but what's interesting is the belief that people had that it could be. And additionally, interesting. I mean, it's always a question of readership and interpretation too. I think that the ways that a Lutheran reader would read Fuchs might be different than a Catholic reader. Just in general, what people bring to the text is different. So Catholic readers are like, it's only pictures of plants. But like for a Lutheran reader, perhaps it's a demonstration of how a Lutheran God has laid out the natural world. And I think it's kind of interesting that a Catholic reader isn't necessarily aware of the full sort of level of potentially individual confessional that is different faith piety right. that could go into making a text. Right. I mean, I think this is really fascinating. We could probably go on 
you know, I for quite can. a bit. Well, I, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much that we can think about. The various permutations of, of thinking through these issues is really fascinating. You know, we didn't even get into Funkenstein, uh, you know, and the relationship between science and theology. But I think the question that always is kind of there in the back of my head at the same time is, you know, this is really interesting. You know, this is really fascinating on an intellectual level. What's what's the big takeaway? Why does it matter that there are these different conceptions of the nature of scientific knowledge or of the possibility of censorship or of the relationship between science and religion? Why do any of these things matter when we look at the history of, of knowledge in early modern Europe and today? That, that to me, is maybe a, a, a final set of issues that we can delve into. I'm curious what, what you think about here. Good. So we're going from Jewish history matters to why does history matter at all? <laughs> why does the history of censorship yeah. matter? Yeah. I mean, I think that careful attention to systems of information control allows us to be more um, articulate consumers of the world around us. I also think that we have such a sort of egotism about our own present and that there's something sort of humbling about studying the past and understanding the ways that people navigated different controversies and pastimes and places. I, I hope that when we think about the past as complicated and contingent, that that allows us to see sort of opportunities for change in the present as well, ways in which we can participate in shaping our own presence and futures. For me as well, I think that when we think about these issues, it causes us to pause and reevaluate our own social environment as well. We, we live in a country with the First Amendment and the freedom of the press and so on and so forth. But the challenge is to try to identify the ways in which the control of information is still a major social debate, even if technically speaking, anybody could, you know, operate their own printing press or post whatever they want on the internet and the government can't tell you, you know, what to say and what not to say. These freedoms of expression are very clearly ingrained into our legal and social consciousness and 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 frameworks. Uh, I just think that that it causes us to to pause and and think critically about the ways in which we are always in this struggle for control. You know, different groups, you know, different individuals you know, and it's not just in China or in Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany, you know, that, that we see censorship, but that, that if we have a broad understanding of what it means, you know, and this applies, I think, to a lot of historical issues and, and contexts, that it causes us to think perhaps more clearly about how we got to now, but also just what's going on around us. Absolutely. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Or I don't think so. Is that all right? Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, anyway, well, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. This has been fun. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll share it with a friend. You can find Jewish History Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.